0: book four section fifty seven of the world as will and idea volume one by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine book four the world as will second aspect the assertion and denial of the will to live when self-consciousness has been attained section fifty seven at every grade that is enlightened by knowledge the will appears as an individual the human individual finds himself as finite in infinite space and time and consequently as a vanishing quantity compared with them he is projected into them and on account of their unlimited nature he has always a merely relative never absolute when and where of his existence for his place and duration are finite parts of what is infinite and boundless his real existence is only in the present whose unchecked flight into the past is a constant transition into death a constant dying for his past life apart from its possible consequences for the present and the testimony regarding the will that is expressed in it is now entirely done with dead and no longer anything and therefore it must be as a matter of reason indifferent to him whether the content of that past was pain or pleasure but the present is always passing through his hands into the past the future is quite uncertain and always short thus his existence even when we consider only its formal side is a constant hurrying of the present into the dead past a constant dying but if we look at it from the physical side it is clear that as our walking is admittedly merely a constantly prevented falling the life of our body is only a constantly prevented dying and ever postponed death and finally in the same way the activity of our mind is a constantly deferred ennui every breath we draw wards off the death that is constantly intruding upon us in this way we fight with it every moment and again at longer intervals through every meal we eat every sleep we take every time we warm ourselves etc in the end death must conquer for we became subject to him through birth and he only plays for a little while with his prey before he swallows it up we pursue our life however with great interest and much solicitude as long as possible as we blow out a soap bubble as long and as large as possible although we know perfectly well that it will burst we saw that the inner being of unconscious nature is a constant striving without end and without rest and this appears to us much more distinctly when we consider the nature of brutes and man willing and striving is its whole being which may be very well compared to an unquenchable thirst but the basis of all willing is need deficiency and thus pain consequently the nature of brutes and man is subject to pain originally and through its very being if on the other hand it lacks objects of desire because it is at once deprived of them by a too easy satisfaction a terrible void and ennui comes over it that is its being and existence itself becomes an unbearable burden to it thus its life swings like a pendulum backwards and forwards between pain and ennui this has also had to express itself very oddly in this way after man had transferred all pain and torments to hell there then remained nothing over for heaven but ennui. but the constant striving which constitutes the inner nature of every manifestation of will obtains its primary and most general foundation at the higher grades of objectification from the fact that here the will manifests itself as a living body with the iron command to nourish it and what gives strength to this command is just that this body is nothing but the objectified will to live itself man as the most complete objectification of that will is in like measure also the most necessitous of all beings he is through and through concrete willing and needing he is a concretion of a thousand necessities with these he stands upon the earth left to himself uncertain about everything except his own need and misery consequently the care for the maintenance of that existence under exacting demands which are renewed every day occupies as a rule the whole of human life to this is directly related the second claim that of the propagation of the species at the same time he is threatened from all sides by the most different kinds of dangers from which it requires constant watchfulness to escape with cautious steps and casting anxious glances round him he pursues his path for a thousand accidents and a thousand enemies lie in wait for him thus he went while yet a savage thus he goes in civilized life there is no security for him qualibus in tenebris vitae quantisque periclis degitur hoc ivy, quadcunque est the life of the great majority is only a constant struggle for this existence itself with the certainty of losing it at last but what enables them to endure this wearisome battle is not so much the love of life as the fear of death which yet stands in the background as inevitable and may come upon them at any moment life itself is a sea full of rocks and whirlpools which man avoids with the greatest care and solicitude although he knows that even if he succeeds in getting through with all his efforts and skill he yet by doing so comes nearer at every step to the greatest the total inevitable and irremediable shipwreck death nay even steers right upon it this is the final goal of the laborious voyage and worse for him than all the rocks from which he has escaped now it is well worth observing that on the one hand the suffering and misery of life may easily increase to such an extent that death itself in the flight from which the whole of life consists becomes desirable and we hasten towards it voluntarily and again on the other hand that as soon as want and suffering permit rest to a man ennui is at once so near that he necessarily requires diversion the striving after existence is what occupies all living things and maintains them in motion but when existence is assured then they know not what to do with it thus the second thing that sets them in motion is the effort to get free from the burden of existence to make it cease to be felt to kill time that is to escape from ennui. accordingly we see that almost all men who are secure from want and care now that at last they have thrown off all other burdens become a burden to themselves and regard as a gain every hour they succeed in getting through and thus every diminution of the very life which till then they have employed all their powers to maintain as long as possible ennui is by no means an evil to be lightly esteemed in the end it depicts on the countenance real despair it makes beings who love each other so little as men do seek each other eagerly and thus becomes the source of social intercourse moreover even from motives of policy public precautions are everywhere taken against it as against other universal calamities for this evil may drive men to the greatest excesses just as much as its opposite extreme famine the people require panem et circenses. the strict penitentiary system of philadelphia makes use of ennui alone as a means of punishment through solitary confinement and idleness and it is found so terrible that it has even led prisoners to commit suicide as want is the constant scourge of the people so ennui is that of the fashionable world in middle-class life ennui is represented by the sunday and want by the six weekdays thus between desiring and attaining all human life flows on throughout the wish is in its nature pain the attainment soon begets satiety the end was only apparent possession takes away the charm the wish the need presents itself under a new form when it does not then follows desolateness emptiness ennui against which the conflict is just as painful as against want that wish and satisfaction should follow each other neither too quickly nor too slowly reduces the suffering which both occasion to the smallest amount and constitutes the happiest life for that which we might otherwise call the most beautiful part of life its purest joy if it were only because it lifts us out of real existence and transforms us into disinterested spectators of it that is pure knowledge which is foreign to all willing the pleasure of the beautiful the true delight in art this is granted only to a very few because it demands rare talents and to these few only as a passing dream and then even these few on account of their higher intellectual power are made susceptible of far greater suffering than duller minds can ever feel and are also placed in lonely isolation by a nature which is obviously different from that of others thus here also accounts are squared but to the great majority of men purely intellectual pleasures are not accessible they are almost incapable of the joys which lie in pure knowledge they are entirely given up to willing if therefore anything is to win their sympathy to be interesting to them it must as is implied in the meaning of the word in some way excite their will even if it is only through a distant and merely problematical relation to it the will must not be left altogether out of the question for their existence lies far more in willing than in knowing action and reaction is their one element we may find in trifles and everyday occurrences the naive expressions of this quality thus for example at any place worth seeing they may visit they write their names in order thus to react to affect the place since it does not affect them again when they see a strange rare animal they cannot easily confine themselves to merely observing it they must rouse it tease it play with it merely to experience action and reaction but this need for excitement of the will manifests itself very specially in the discovery and support of card-playing which is quite peculiarly the expression of the miserable side of humanity but whatever nature and fortune may have done whoever a man be and whatever he may possess the pain which is essential to life cannot be thrown off pelides eulavit intuitus incaelum latum and again jovis quidem filius eram Saturni, verum irunam habebam infinitam the ceaseless efforts to banish suffering accomplish no more than to make it change its form it is essentially deficiency want care for the maintenance of life if we succeed which is very difficult in removing pain in this form it immediately assumes a thousand others varying according to age and circumstances such as lust passionate love jealousy envy hatred anxiety ambition covetousness sickness etc etc if at last it can find entrance in no other form it comes in the sad grey garments of tediousness and ennui against which we then strive in various ways if finally we succeed in driving this away we shall hardly do so without letting pain enter in one of its earlier forms and the dance begin again from the beginning for all human life is tossed backwards and forwards between pain and ennui depressing as this view of life is i will draw attention by the way to an aspect of it from which consolation may be drawn and perhaps even a stoical indifference to one's own present ills may be attained for our impatience at these arises for the most part from the fact that we regard them as brought about by a chain of causes which might easily be different we do not generally grieve over ills which are directly necessary and quite universal for example the necessity of age and of death and many daily inconveniences it is rather the consideration of the accidental nature of the circumstances that brought some sorrow just to us that gives it its sting but if we have recognised that pain as such is inevitable and essential to life and that nothing depends upon chance but its mere fashion the form under which it presents itself that thus our present sorrow fills a place that without it would at once be occupied by another which now is excluded by it and that therefore fate can affect us little in what is essential such a reflection if it were to become a living conviction might produce a considerable degree of stoical equanimity and very much lessen the anxious care for our own well-being but in fact such a powerful control of reason over directly felt suffering seldom or never occurs besides through this view of the inevitableness of pain of the supplanting of one pain by another and the introduction of a new pain through the passing away of that which preceded it one might be led to the paradoxical but not absurd hypothesis that in every individual the measure of the pain essential to him was determined once for all by his nature a measure which could neither remain empty nor be more than filled however much the form of the suffering might change thus his suffering and well-being would by no means be determined from without but only through that measure that natural disposition which indeed might experience certain additions and diminutions from the physical condition at different times but yet on the whole would remain the same and would just be what is called the temperament or more accurately the degree in which he might be uscolos or duscolos as plato expresses it in the first book of the republic That is, in an easy or difficult mood this hypothesis is supported not only by the well-known experience that great suffering makes all lesser ills cease to be felt and conversely that freedom from great suffering makes even the most trifling inconveniences torment us and put us out of humour but experience also teaches that if a great misfortune at the mere thought of which we shuddered actually befalls us as soon as we have overcome the first pain of it our disposition remains for the most part unchanged and conversely that after the attainment of some happiness we have long desired we do not feel ourselves on the whole and permanently very much better off and agreeably situated than before only the moment at which these changes occur affects us with unusual strength as deep sorrow or exulting joy but both soon pass away for they are based upon illusion for they do not spring from the immediately present pleasure or pain but only from the opening up of a new future which is anticipated in them. Only by borrowing from the future could pain or pleasure be heightened so abnormally, and consequently not enduringly. It would follow, from the hypothesis advanced, that a large part of the feeling of suffering and of well-being would be subjective and determined a priori, as is the case with knowing. And we may add the following remarks as evidence in favour of it. Human cheerfulness or dejection are manifestly not determined by external circumstances such as wealth and position, for we see at least as many glad faces among the poor as among the rich. Further, the motives which induce suicide are so very different that we can assign no motive that is so great as to bring it about, even with great probability in every character, and few that would be so small that the like of them had never caused it now although the degree of our serenity or sadness is not at all times the same yet in consequence of this view we shall not attribute it to the change of outward circumstances but to that of the inner condition the physical state for when an actual though only temporary increase of our serenity even to the extent of joyfulness takes place it usually appears without any external occasion it is true that we often see our pain arise only from some definite external relation and are visibly oppressed and saddened by this only then we believe that if only this were taken away the greatest contentment would necessarily ensue but this is illusion the measure of our pain and our happiness is on the whole according to our hypothesis subjectively determined for each point of time and the motive for sadness is related to that just as a blister which draws to a head all the bad humours otherwise distributed is related to the body the pain which is at that period of time essential to our nature and therefore cannot be shaken off would without the definite external cause of our suffering be divided at a hundred points and appear in the form of a hundred little annoyances and cares about things which we now entirely overlook because our capacity for pain is already filled by that chief evil which has concentrated in a point all the suffering otherwise dispersed this corresponds also to the observation that if a great and pressing care is lifted from our breast by its fortunate issue another immediately takes its place the whole material of which was already there before yet could not come into consciousness as care because there was no capacity left for it and therefore this material of care remained indistinct and unobserved in a cloudy form on the farthest horizon of consciousness but now that there is room this prepared material at once comes forward and occupies the throne of the reigning care of the day and if it is very much lighter in its matter than the material of the care which has vanished it knows how to blow itself out so as apparently to equal it in size and thus as the chief care of the day completely fills the throne excessive joy and very keen suffering always occur in the same person for they condition each other reciprocally and are also in common condition by great activity of the mind both are produced as we have just seen not by what is really present but by the anticipation of the future but since pain is essential to life and its degree is also determined by the nature of the subject sudden changes because they are always external cannot really alter its degree thus an error and delusion always lies at the foundation of immoderate joy or grief and consequently both these excessive strainings of the mind can be avoided by knowledge every immoderate joy exultatio insolens laetitia always rests on the delusion that one has found in life what can never be found there lasting satisfaction of the harassing desires and cares which are constantly breeding new ones from every particular delusion of this kind one must inevitably be brought back later and then when it vanishes must pay for it with pain as bitter as the joy its entrance caused was keen so far then it is precisely like a height from which one can come down only by a fall therefore one ought to avoid them and every sudden excessive grief is just a fall from some such height the vanishing of such a delusion and so conditioned by it consequently we might avoid them both if we had sufficient control over ourselves to survey things always with perfect clearness as a whole and in their connection and steadfastly to guard against really lending them the colours which we wish they had the principal effort of the stoical ethics was to free the mind from all such delusion and its consequences and to give it instead an equanimity that could not be disturbed it is this insight that inspires horace in the well-known ode aequam memento rebus in arduis servare mentem non secus in bonis ab insolenti temperatam laetitia for the most part however we close our minds against the knowledge which may be compared to a bitter medicine that suffering is essential to life and therefore does not flow in upon us from without but that every one carries about with him its perennial source in his own heart we rather seek constantly for an external particular cause as it were a pretext for the pain which never leaves us just as the free man makes himself an idol in order to have a master for we unweariedly strive from wish to wish and although every satisfaction however much it promised when attained fails to satisfy us but for the most part comes presently to be an error of which we are ashamed yet we do not see that we draw water with the sieve of the danaides but ever hasten to new desires sed dum ave quod avemus id exuperare videtur post aliud cum contigit ilud avemus et sitis aequa tenet vitae semper hiantes. thus it either goes on for ever or what is more rare and presupposes a certain strength of character till we reach a wish which is not satisfied and yet cannot be given up in that case we have as it were found what we sought something that we can always blame instead of our own nature as the source of our suffering and thus although we are now at variance with our fate we are reconciled to our existence for the knowledge is again put far from us that suffering is essential to this existence itself and true satisfaction impossible the result of this form of development is a somewhat melancholy disposition The constant endurance of a single great pain and the contempt for all lesser sorrows or joys that proceeds from it. Consequently, an already nobler phenomenon than that constantly seizing upon ever new forms of illusion, which is much more common. End of book four, section fifty seven, recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.